Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. So that's what we have up, coming up uh, in the next few months. Our first reader tonight is Lisa Minetti. Lisa Minetti's first novel, The Gentling Box, won the Bram Stoker Award, and her work has been nominated for the Stoker multiple times. Her novella, The Box Jumper, about Houdini, will be out this year, and she is currently working on a new novel, tentatively titled Radium Girl. Her Bram Stoker-nominated novella, Dissolution, is soon to be a feature-length film directed by Paul Layden. Ladies and gentlemen, Lisa Minetti. Hi, everyone, and and thank you, Matt and Ellen in absentia, because it's really an honor for me to be here. Um, Anyway, I'm just going to quickly talk a little bit about the novella I'm reading from, which is called The Box Jumper, and since I'm going to read a little quotation in the beginning, you'll all know what that is. Um, And um, it's not a linear story, so I just want to let you guys know that. Uh, The present time in the novel is 1956, and the past time is the 1920s. And basically, our narrator is Leona Derwatt, and that's for all of you who are Patricia Highsmith fans like me. So it gives a a little bit of a clue early on that she, of course, is an unreliable narrator. And um, basically, I'm just going to start reading. Um, it, uh, I'm actually going to read the opening because even though some of my first readers are here um, and they suggested the, this scene and that scene, which I don't want to give away too much of the book because I hope you will think about it in September when it comes out, um, I decided to read the beginning because I, I figured I was going to have to talk for at least five minutes to explain where we were and it, that wasn't going to work for anybody. Yeah. Anyway, um, I have a few quotes in the beginning which sort of explain a little bit about it. Box Jumper, a nickname ascribed to a magician's assistant, typically a beautiful female and historically an icon of glamour whose principal function on stage frequently involved, among other classic roles such as handling props, levitating or vanishing, misdirecting the audience. And that's from the Magician's Encyclopedia. The question of whether or not Houdini was deliberately killed may never fully be resolved. There is no doubt that the death of the world's greatest magician benefited the spiritualist movement and only their movement. That's from The Secret Life of Houdini. Nothing may occur in a given haunted location while you're actually there. The entities affect you whenever they want to affect you, when you're at your weakest and most vulnerable. And that's from Lorraine Warren. Okay, so now we get to go. It's a... it's a novella, and as I said, it's not really chapters, it's not really sections, but this first section is called Invitation. It was the children who brought Houdini back, the ones who were dead or missing. He never had any of his own, but he loved children, made sure there were always free performances at hospitals and orphanages. Once in Edinburgh, he saw so many kids running barefoot through the streets, 
He even bought 300 pairs of shoes for them and fitted them up at his benefit show at the Lyceum. That's the kind of man he was. He was magical, all right. So much so, I think I loved him before I ever met him, back when I was just a kid myself. He was always in the headlines, but the day I'm thinking of, when I first fell in love with him, was bitterly cold here, one day past the Ides of March, not even the barest hint of spring in the air. Houdini had just become the first aviator in Australia. My father, like half the men in America and Europe, was fascinated by flying. But Harry wasn't content to read about aeronautics or merely watch newsreels. He bought a voisin and hired a mechanic and an instructor, essentially taught himself in a matter of weeks, then took to the skies. I can hear my father gushing over the morning newspaper. Imagine that. Here's the guy, world famous, the king of handcuffs, the greatest escape artist of all time, and he just plunks down some money, gets him a biplane, and zoom. He's airborne. It's unbelievable. What a man. He smacked the newspaper with the back of his hand for emphasis, folded over the page so I could read it. I could hear the wind gusting through the thin panes of glass in the kitchen windows, smelled snow on the air. I kept thinking about swirling updrafts and cross currents on the trackless field near Melbourne. Then my father, slightly chagrined, finished lacing his heavy boots, stood to down the least last of the cheap coffee milk that was his breakfast, swiped at his dripping mustache with a frazzled sleeve, and shouted he was late for the work at the factory. Still, I never forgot that note of joy and exultation in his voice, the brilliant gleam in his eyes. For one brief moment, he was a boy again, a boy who had still had dreams of flight and freedom. I knew he'd never be rich or famous, but I was glad he wasn't bitter, glad he could find a, a tiny sparkling bit of magic by reading about his hero, my hero from then on too. I'd been born with the turn of the century, and back in those days, those of us who led narrow, trapped lives often filled the hollows created by the grind of poverty with imagination, with care-wrought scrapbooks and news clippings, glimpses of other, more colorful worlds painted on posters and lithographs. I dreamed about traveling magic shows, spangled girls on top-hatted men who wore black capes and vanished amid purple vapors, vapors and gouts of yellow flame. Dreamt about conjurer's mysteries till, wandering one day past Martinkas on 6th Avenue, I saw the sign in the window, help wanted. There were two more years comprised of an odd amalgam of jaw-popping boredom standing in front of a brass cast register and low feverish excitement unpacking the apparatus created for illusionists. I always wish my father had been alive when I met Harry in the magic shop back in 1919 or that he'd gotten to see me on stage in the glare of footlights. Houdini made every stagehand, rigor, prop boy, and silk-clad assistant swear to never, never to reveal any of his secrets. I swore too, until now. Mrs. Derwatt, so kind of you to meet me, miss, if you want to get technical. Mrs. Derwatt was my mother, who's been dead since I was 10. But really, I prefer Leona, just Leona. We have that in common, using one name. Emery flashed a thin-lipped grin at me, but I recalled when he'd been known as the professor on the boards. A magician, he'd said, a medium. Years of working with Houdini taught me to be very wary of mediums. I saw him perform many times, Emery said. His eyes were magnetic, you know? They had a glitter I've never seen in anyone else's. Looking into them was like gazing into a mirror reflecting sharp moonlight, a mirror on the bed of a dark sea. Emery's statement hung in the air for a moment, suspended in the cloud of cigarette smoke. They said he hypnotized his audience and there, were, there are thousands of spiritualists who believe he had, their had the power, among other talents, shall we say, of an even more occult nature. Before I could answer or even speculate about his motives, the waiters circled past, an eel swimming in the current of the nameless tomb, 
more chivalry than music, issuing from a three-piece jazz band. Amory pushed a scotch across the worn Formica tabletop toward me. How I hated cheap, dirty bars with grimy floors, plastic ashtrays, and ungainly glassware. I didn't need the drink, not like poor Bess, <clears throat> sorry, wrecked by Howard's death, but what the hell, he was buying. He just didn't know I wasn't selling. I wasn't betraying, I was remembering. 30 years, I can't believe Houdini's been dead for 30 years, a lifetime ago, more than half the time I've lived, and except for me, all of them, the principals, are, anyhow, are gone. Bess, Sir Arthur, even that fraudulent bitch, Evelyn, that self-serving liar, that slut. I used to watch her sidelong glances, the intimate way she had of laying soft fingers on the iron-muscled forearm, laughing, flirting. But Houdini proved she cheated during the seances, and, like so many others, that she too was a fake. Still, he was almost unfailingly polite, and I'm almost certain he never succumbed, not to the likes of that she-demon medium. He couldn't have. Evelyn and her crowd were the ones who disappeared all those children. And worse. God, I loved him. Emery nodded. I saw his thin, elegant hand cant sideways to signal the waiter. There was a little magic, a little stardust in the gesture. Professionally trained, whatever status he might or not or might not have achieved on the stage, not two in a hundred thousand men would use palm and fingers so eloquently. The drinks appeared, and I watched him slide the scotch so deftly into the circle of my reach, the ice cubes barely moved. His skin was very bright against the black of the table and his tuxedo sleeves. I didn't look at his face. I watched his hands, and I thought about Harry. I want to show you some pictures. They materialized on the table as if he'd wrung them from the air. The short stack of photos lay face down alongside a small, tiny, tidy bundle of love letters tied with thin lavender ribbon. I recognized them at once. My heart sped up, and I felt my pulse throbbing at my temple, but I made myself go calm, still, just as he taught me all those years ago. Okay, a little space break here. Most people knew him as the consummate escape artist, but there were three distinct stages to his career, and they mirrored the act he put on during his final years. First, the seemingly impossible feat. You could read the audience's collective reaction like newsprint. How the hell did he do that? This was the Houdini manacled and chained who escaped wooden packing cases tossed into icy rivers, fought his way out of straitjackets, prison cells, leather sacks, and the piece de resistance, the Chinese water torture cell. Next up, Houdini as Conjurer Supreme, the high priest of magic. Card, tricks, sleight of hand, disappearing coins, elephants, and bejeweled assistants. And finally, the debunker of fake mediums. He staged seances that trumped even the most lurid fiction. Men shuddered, women screamed, wept, fainted. Then he showed the audience how it was all done. He shared secrets, named names, and joined local police to stand at a firm they'd smelled rats and detected trickery and sham. In every case, every time. When spiritualists rose up and cried foul, they were shouted down. Newspaper headlines headlined the gaudy rioting of the crowd, the atmosphere that crescendoed into circus pandemonium, the angry threats, the medium's predictions of his imminent death and his trumpeting rejoinder, hey, listen, they're nothing but two-bit charlatans. They can chant and curse me till doomsday, then stick a thousand hat pins right through my picture to maim or kill me, but none of them could give me so much as even one lousy pimple. He was defiant, unafraid, a crusader, and this was the Harry Houdini I met, worked for, and loved. It wasn't hard to guess which picture Emery would show me first, and presto, there it was. A considerably thinner version of myself, aged 20 or so, decked out in a white summer frock and sporting a lacy parasol, standing next to a 40-something Houdini, 
at five feet five inches, the tallest, who was in turn flanked by Bess. A typical 1920s studio portrait suggesting an afternoon at the seaside or a lakeshore excursion. Jolly companions, three points of a mystical triangle. But above us, swirling amid milky sky and puffy cumulus, a retinue of ghostly faces, all of them eerie blank-eyed and impassive, and all the more unnerving because each phantom had been a suicide. He was very interested in suicides. I wondered if Emery knew about the small cemetery on the outskirts of Monte Carlo for those who lost at the gaming tables. In despair or drunkenness or both, they shot themselves or leapt from hotel balconies. The casino staff had a disconcerting habit of stuffing the, the pockets of those found with cash, as if they killed themselves over ruined love instead of wrecked finances. <laughs> Houdini found it just before he'd gotten word his beloved mother died, and wandering among weeds and unkempt stones, he told me he had his first premonition. Cecilia was gone, but the telegram was an anticlimax. One of Houdini's little experiments, I presume, Emery said, tapping the edge of the photo with a fingernail. Fingernails were dangerous. Underneath them, I knew, a variety of miniature implements and tools could be hidden. Pencil lead, crayon, chalk, wax. He was creepy. What did he really want from me? Blackmail? He had the letters. But I wasn't going to let myself get distracted. I could string him along, too. Of course it was dummied, I said. Sometimes he used double exposures, two plates, one with live subjects, one with the disembodied, to create one photo. You must have seen pictures of him sitting with Abraham Lincoln. I sipped the scotch, but I was suddenly cold, as if an icy wind gusted. That had been one of medium Eusapia Palladino's parlor tricks, and scrutinized him more closely, forcing myself to concentrate. Houdini made them to demonstrate how easily spirits could appear in photographs, how naive people, wounded with grief, could be duped into paying for another form of contact with loved ones who were dead. He exposed all their tricks over and over, the phony slate writing, telepathy, floating trumpets, blasts of arctic air, spirit hands. Now we have a section break. Yeah. I like the old walrus, Houdini said. I really do, but anyone, well, practically anyone can fool him. And his influence is huge. Every newspaper here and across the pond writes up whatever twaddle he spouts. We were in the Manhattan townhouse on West 113th Street, and there was a scattering of clips, clippings about Arthur Conan Doyle on his desk. You'd think, he thinks, hell, I thought, the guy who dreamed up Sherlock Holmes would be the keenest observer on the planet, he grinned. But children can fool him. In fact, they have. That business with the fairy photographs. He shook his head. I thought we'd help him a little. Nothing for him to be embarrassed about if we show him privately just how these things are done. A little space. The fake mediums maintained that strict language not only enhanced cosmic vibrations, but more importantly proved that with their hands and feet accounted for, any manifestations had to come directly from spirit entities. I smiled, thinking that even though Houdini had said he was going to demonstrate how every effect could be accomplished by purely physical means, and there was not going to be absolutely nothing occult about the seance, because every bit was sheer conjuring, Sir Arthur was in for something of a shock. Just like the phony trans artist, Houdini began with a prayer, his voice appropriately solemn, even though, as I knew, he considered using prayer and hymns to connive believers the worst kind of blasphemy. Can you imagine anything uglier than manipulating people's sincere belief in God to convince them that, they're, that you're genuine, the real honest-to-Jesus ticket, when you're about to scheme as many dollars as you can right out of their pocketbooks? It's disgusting. The last amen intoned, 
the final strains of Nearer to God, My, My God to Thee, on the Victrola Houdini cranked up just before we'd taken seats, faded, and there was a deep silence. I could feel Doyle's pulse against my fingertips. Houdini cleared his throat and said, Are there any spirits here? Nothing. We have to concentrate. There could be no resistance, no skepticism. We have to open the portal, open ourselves. Silence. The merest dimming of the red lamp, but Sir Arthur's gaze was riveted on the circle of pale hands on the tabletop, and I wasn't sure he'd even noticed the growing darkness. If any spirits are here, we ask for a sign, Houdini said. A tremendous boom, loud and startling as the crack of thunder. At the same time, the table rose up swiftly, and the red lamp went out with a hiss. I heard Doyle's sharp intake of breath, but his hand remained rooted in mine, even when we all lifted our arms as the wooden table tipped twice drunkenly, then finally steadied itself, floating shoulder high. Slowly it rocked back and forth, finally settling down against the floor. Do you have a message for us? Houdini breathed. A bell tinkled softly. In the dark, it was impossible to tell where the sound came from. Who was the message for? Show us. We beg you, please. Now there was a whispering sound, like the rustle of satin garments. And across the large room and out of the dark, the tiny faint outline of a dead white face swirled, then moved slowly toward us, becoming larger and clearer. Who are you? Houdini said. Who is your message for? The eerie voice from the wavering figure was as mottled as if the thing's throat were choked with the dirt of the grave. I have come, it rapped painfully, then trailed off so distant, so hard. Spirit, we can help you. Who are you? What is your message? So much sorrow. Do either of you recognize her? Leona? Sir Arthur? She had long, wavy hair, dark, glittering eyes. Her mouth was a narrow slash. Doyle and I shook our heads. Give us a sign. Stroke the head of the one who need, whose need to know brought you here. Make the sign of the cross, Houdini said. At the same instant, Doyle nearly jolted out of his seat, crying, Who are you? A barely luminous and distinct hand seemed to be already in the process of drawing away from the table and receding further into the darkness. That touch was ice cold, Doyle said. Damn near startled me into losing my grip on your hands, Harry. You did well, Houdini said. Your experience at so many seances over the years kept you steady. But I think there's more. Let's find out who this woman is and what she wants to tell you, Houdini said. Then he addressed the spirit. On the large desk near the standing globe, you'll find a bowl with warm paraffin. Place your hands in it, then dip them into the bowl of cool water alongside. If you understand me, tap three times for yes. Three sharp raps knocked against the wooden table. Excellent. Sir Arthur, did you wash the slates on all four sides as I told you before we started? Yes, you gave me the damp sponge yourself, my dear boy. And they were completely blank on all four sides. Yes. And you strung them from the cord we set up before we began. Certainly. They're right where I hung them, just over our heads. A stream of cold air blasted around us, and I felt Doyle's hand quake. Spirit, there's a set of lock slates, the same type children use in schoolrooms, dangling in midair above this table. Kindly write your name and tell us why you're here. In particular, why you've come to see Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. There was a brief pause. Pause. Then scratching like chalk writing on a blackboard. Do you hear that? Doyle breathed. Yes, I said. Houdini asked for quiet. Then a last prayerful invocation. I'm going to use self-hypnosis to induce a trance state in myself. And I'm going to ask whatever spirits are present to rekindle the red lamp very, very slowly. And if they favor us, to give us a definite sign, the most definite sign possible from the other side. I'll say the prayer, and Leona and Sir Arthur, you must entreat the spirit of this woman or any others nearby. Also say the prayer while you chant Donne. 
He, he took a deep breath. Our Father, who art in heaven, Doyle and I kept up a steady rhythm. Doné, 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 doné polonu, doné. By the gleam of the light, we saw a tiny wisp, like spiderweb, slowly inch out from Houdini's mouth. Gradually, it thickened and seemed to grow heavier, pulling at him. He lay his head down on the table, and the ectoplasm twirled from between his lips and coiled over his chin until the large, faintly glowing mass puddled on the table. His eyes were closed. His breath was so shallow, Houdini appeared to have fainted. It's all right, Sir Arthur, I said. You've seen me on stage with him, and I know what to do. I called his name. We broke the circle, and I tapped his shoulder. A few seconds later, his eyes fluttered open, and he sat up. Are you dizzy? You look quite pale, Sir Arthur said. He turned to me. I'm speaking as a doctor now. He's white as a sheet, and I think you ought to have a sip of brandy. He doesn't drink. Well, he needs something. Let me feel his pulse. I'm all right, really, Houdini said, but his smile appeared pasted on rather than genuine. I must have been out of it. I, I was really under. Did something happen? Lights, please, Leona. We all blanked when I switched on the first of the Tiffany lamps. Doyle hovered over the magician. You're still milk pale, and your, your pulse is thready, Harry. Houdini waved him away. I'm all right. Leona, fetch the brandy for Sir Arthur, and then you and I will show him how it was all done. A little space break. I've said it a hundred times. Whether you know it or not, you've got occult power. I, the only explanation for how you pull off those stunts of yours. All purely physical, Sir Arthur. Nothing supernatural, I assure you. On stage, perhaps. But I know fainting when I see it. And I know in a regular heartbeat when I hear it. In good light at a patient's bedside, undoubtedly. But not here. Not tonight. And certainly not when fakirs claim they have control over their heartbeats. He pulled a small, hard India rubber ball from deep inside the hollow of his armpit and playfully bounced it to me. I caught it and walked it through my fingers before I palmed it, and it appeared to have vanished. Houdini and I both laughed when Doyle's face registered surprise, his mouth hanging open like a hinged box you could have used to trap woodcocks. One merely has to squeeze the hidden ball, Harry explained, and since the circulation to the fingers is diminished, it makes it seem as though the pulse is slower or weakened. Hidden in the axilla, the underarm, you say? With the lights on, no, sorry. Uh, right, now let's sit at the science taught table again. With the lights on, we sat down and linked hands and feet. Look under the table, what do you see? Same as before, my foot is right on top of your toes. Look up, Houdini said, and a second later, the tinkling bell rang. Look again. D Doyle dived beneath them, we all laughed. Houdini had withdrawn his foot from his shoe, and the bell, grasped between his naked toes sticking out of a brown half-sock, was ringing wildly. Special shoes, Sir Arthur. They have steel caps so that, as the sitter, you can't tell that my foot's not under yours. Huh. Houdini slid his foot back into the shoe. Let's show him the apparition. Now watch closely, Sir Arthur. The red bulb in the sconce guttered out, but Doyle's gaze was riveted on the tiny white blur of a face, seemingly the dimension of a demitasse saucer that appeared in the furthest corner of the library, then slowly came nearer, gaining in size and clarity, clarity the closer it came to the seance table. When it was hovering above Doyle, its winding sheet brushed his shoulder. The polar chill blustered menacingly around us, and just before the spirit receded into the sparkling mist, the luminescent hand traced the cross on Doyle's forehead. Well, you've told me it's trickery, but my dear fellow, I'm sitting here live as Parliament, and I can't say I've got a clue how you've done it. He blinked owlishly, more Watson than Holmes, to my way of thinking. The incandescent lights came on. This time, Houdini didn't bother with asking me to get up. He stepped on one of the buttons hidden under the carpet. 
There are several ways to create an apparition, Houdini said, and I've used them all. Sometimes, depending on how many people are participating, I, or a confederate, get up, and in that case, I don a mask and a black satin robe streaked with phosphorescent paint and just cavort around the room as necessary. Tonight, though, Leona let go of my hand, and I used magician's thread to pull the mask and the drapery, which is French veiling boiled in olive oil and water, and then luminesced, closer to the table. I saw it float near the ceiling. Yes, the thread is rigged through the eye hooks up there, he pointed, and over by the standing globe and the bookshelves, Houdini shrugged. And that icy draft, a fan, I presume. One that's quite silent, I might add. Houdini shook his head and grinned. Using my free hand, I took a thin black rubber glove from my pocket, where there was also an ice cube nestling. He took it out, what was now melted to the size of a small cork, and tossed it onto the table. And one side of the glove is painted with phosphorus, so when I wave the black side, I can create the chill breeze. And when I made the sign of the cross, I turned the glove so you could see it glow. And of course it was cold, in one's imagination, the rhyme of the tomb, when I touched you with it. Marvelous. The ectoplasm is a regurgitation trick. I say, that's foul. <laughs> Houdini chuckled. People have been paying money for centuries to watch sword swallowers, stone eaters, and fakirs who imbibe poison. Did you know back in 1650 there was a man named Florent Marchand who advertised that he could produce any liquor his audience named in his vomitus? <laughs> a few hours before his performance, he merely drank water infused with color from soaking Brazil nuts. Naturally, he started his routine with the darker beverages. The swallowing business brings to mind some the time some stupid fop shoved a billiard ball down his gullet at my, on a bet at my club. He did it three times, won a pot full of money, too. But then this trap drank it a few more brandies and tried it again on a double-or-nothing wager, and it got stuck. More's the pity, since I was the sole doctor nearby. Not only was I an eye specialist back when I had my practice, but naturally I hadn't been an award in years. We nearly had to break the poor fool's jaw to get the damn thing out. I learned the art from a circus lad when I was 10, and one practices by using a very small potato on a string. The slates were taken down, and Houdini demonstrated how with a fake flap, the message he'd already written was concealed so that while Doyle thought he was washing all four sides, he never came close to seeing it. Slates, the magician told him, could be tricked in a hundred ways, by exchanging them over the sitter's head or under the table, or with an accomplice hidden nearby. The sound of the writing was achieved by Houdini's fingernails scratching a piece of slate glued under the table. In fact, it was even easier doing that than concealing writing done on the sly in a pocket or behind one's back using a well-known magical device, a swami, a kind of miniature clip that went under the fingernail and held tiny bits of chalk, crayon, or lead pencil. That takes actual practice to do well, Houdini said. And in the dime museums, I knew lots of armless folk who could manage everything from picking up drinking glasses to writing with their toes. I could do that in a pinch, too, if I have to put the slate on the floor to chalk out a spirit message. If I'm using, say, my pockets, I can write with either hand, and also backwards, if I need to show the message in mirrors. The table could be levitated with clips attached to his belt, with his knees, his feet, or by means of a silver ring he wore that had a notch that fitted to a straight pin hammered into the tabletop. And of course, there's many other ways he tilts a table, and clever mediums combine methods and change them to keep the sitters off balance. And you say some of these mediums actually go to magic shops and have apparatus constructed? Not some, Sir Arthur, all. <laughs> I worked at Martinka's, that's where I met Mr. Houdini, and I can vouch for what he says. You wouldn't believe how many mediums were on the client list. There was even a secret catalog of conjuring effects that mediums used that got passed around a lot. 
They used it to cover their tracks when they ordered. It had everything from, there's also something he interrupted, called the Blue Book, Sir Arthur, only instead of listing the names of upper crusters and the society gang, like that Debrezzi Pirajeb over in England, it's got a roster of suckers. People that mediums have successfully hoodwinked, like rich, lonely widows who are ripe for further fleecing. The East Coast version alone has more than 2,000 names. But my dear Houdini, I know that some mediums will bamboozle now and then, but only when their genuine powers are momentarily in uh, remission, Sir Arthur said. Houdini shook his head. Tell him, Leona. Tell him how they laugh about the gulls. They call them shut eyes, he said. Then he showed Doyle the wax hand he'd, he'd asked the spirit to cast. It was done with another rubber glove filled with water, though air would work too. But the wrist opening is too small for any human to pull away his hand without breaking the mold. That's where the water comes in. The fraudulent medium only has to empty the glove and it can be removed with no problem whatsoever. But Houdini, I have such a spirit hand in my possession, and I assure you it wasn't faked. Just because you can replicate a trick, that doesn't mean how it was done. Doyle seemed very proud of his logic. You can't be saying, surely, they're not all fakes. Sir Arthur, let me put it to you this way. If you threw me and a thousand spiritualist mediums, all of us wearing handcuffs and locked inside rope trunks into the East River, I'd be the only one who came up. Doyle sputtered a little, but nothing more on the subject was said. The man was a guest at his house, and Houdini let it drop too. But I think they both knew it was the beginning of the end of their friendship. actually does become supernatural and more and more things happen but I figured like it was so convoluted it would be hard to explain so that's the opening anyway that was terrific thanks Lisa where's that available it's gonna be out from Smart Rhino Press in September okay fantastic um, we're gonna take a 10-minute break and I did want to mention that Alan Datlow um, is traveling to Florida I am not Alan Datlow I am David Mercura Rivera <laughs> Uh, not long enough. No. Uh, we're going to take a 10 minute break. Please drink, and we'll be back with Phil and Phil. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, welcome back to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. I'm Matthew Kressel. I'm the co host with Ellen Datlow. Uh, Ellen Datlow is away right now. She's hanging out with uh, this gentleman named Mr. George Martin. You guys probably never heard of him. Apparently he's cooler than, than we are, so that's why she's, uh, she's in Santa Fe right now uh, promoting her new uh, anthology, The Doll Collection, put out by Tor. So uh, it's a really, actually it's a really awesome uh, anthology if you guys get a chance. Um, so my partner in crime tonight is Mr. Mercurio David Rivera, the gentleman who forgot to introduce himself uh, about 20 minutes ago. It's okay, it happens. Um, before, before we uh, introduce Caitlin, our next reader, um, I just have a quick uh, book giveaway. So um, I have a book coming out. I'm not, I'm not self-promoting at all. I'm self-promoting. Um, with Resurrection House, it's, it's coming out in, uh, it's called King of Shards. It's coming out in uh, October from Resurrection House. And my publisher said, hey, you do the KGB thing. You know, maybe you could give away some, some books for us. I said, Okay, you want to send me a free box of books? Sure. So I have 
a lot, some books to give away, so hang on. And, uh, oh, before I give them away, um, wait, I'm not just gonna give them away. I'm not just gonna give them away. My friend said, well, you should do, you should do like, a, you know, don't just give them away, have like a, a question that they have to answer. So, so everybody knows, or not everybody, but my, all my friends know that I'm a huge Blade Runner fan. So I thought, I'm gonna ask some Blade Runner questions and maybe you guys will get it, and if not, It'll be some awkward silences here. <laughs> so hang on, let me get the first book out. <laughs> That's right, Jeopardy rules. Okay, so, all right. I have, I have two copies of the anthology uh, 13. Uh, it's put out by Underland Press, which is an imprint of Resurrection House. A lot of really uh, great authors in here. Um, Richard Bowes, who's not here tonight. Um, Daryl Gregory. Uh, Alex Daly McFarlane. Um, let's see, Adrian Odasso, Kat Rambo. Uh, Fran Wild, AC Wise, Christy Yant. A lot of really awesome authors in here. Uh, it's 13... It's stories of transformation. 13 is a transformational number. So I'm going to ask, there's two, I have two copies. I'm going to ask, uh, okay, so this is, I'm, my nerd's going to come out right now. Uh, in Blade Runner, all of the replicants have an animal associated with them. Uh, what animal was Pris? All right, we have a winner. Well, I, I may... I might have heard that answer first from that direction. Um, all right, all right. You know what? I'll give. You, I'll give. How about because you guys both answered? I'll give you one and you one here. Can you pass that down? All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Okay. So the next book I have is uh, Darren Bradley's Chimpanzee. Darren Bradley wrote Noise, which is like pension esque, if you could call it that. This is like like take that to like add. Uh, Chuck Palahniuk to that, and then that's what this is. It's a, I won't curse because there might be children here. It's it's a beep, amazing book. Um, Chimpanzee Darren Bradley. So my next question is, what year does Blade Runner take place? Oh jeez. Can I answer? Yeah. Twenty nineteen. All right, we got a winner right here. Twenty nineteen. All right. All right. Wait, what? I should just give you a book just for that. All right. So I, I have a, I have a review copy of Margaret Reed's science fiction novel Archangel, and then I also have a a collection of nonfiction by Jack Cady. So, which one would you like, Lisanne? Just because you're such an awesome geek. Jack Cady. All right. Here you go. All right. All right, I'll throw you guys an easy one, and then, and then I'll step out of the way. So for Margaret Reed's review copy of Archangel, um, this is really easy. What city does Blade Runner take place in? Los Angeles. I don't know who answered that first. Everyone is... <laughs> All right, I'll give it to John. All right, guys, thank you. Um, all right. So Caitlin R. Kiernan is our next reader. Caitlin was recently described by the New York Times as one of our essential writers of dark fiction. 
and is a two-time recipient of both the World Fantasy and Bram Stoker Awards. Her novels include The Red Tree and The Drowning Girl, a memoir, and her short fiction has to date been collected in 12 volumes, including Tales of Pain and Wonder, The Ammonite Violin and Others, and The Ape's Wife and Other Stories. In 2015, Subterranean Press will release Beneath an Oil Dark Sea, the best of Caitlin R. Kiernan, volume two. Here's Kate. A couple of quick things before I start. Like, is there anything you can do about this microphone? Huh? You're good. Okay. Um, everyone can hear me? Yes. Yeah. Um, in the room, there's a, a woman named Nicola Astis. If you've seen the trailer, the book trailer for The Drowning Girl, she played Imp. She's back there. I didn't know she was going to be here. So. I, I held her down in a bathtub in my apartment and almost yeah. drowned her. Um, well, it's a wonder that we're here because um, not only was our train an hour late, but we're okay now. It won't. It will be really. There we go. I'm going to skip the stupid story about almost not getting here. But it involved a cabin at Neil Gaiman's and a Wendigo, and almost freezing to death. <laughs> Wendigos do that. Yeah. So this is from a novella I wrote called Interstate Love Song, Murder Ballad Number Eight. There are seven others. Um, if there are any children in here, you might want to leave because it, this is this will be my next novel. Um, it's it's basically a study for my next novel. The way of the transgressor is hard, Cormac McCarthy. The Impala's wheels one. The Impala's wheels singing on the black hot asphalt sound like frying steaks. USDA cut T-bone sirloin sizzling against August blacktop in November or Utah in Nevada or Utah or Nebraska, Alabama or Georgia or where the fuck ever this one day, this one hour, this one motherfucking minute is going down. Here at the end, the end of one of us, months or a crimson thumb smudge across the bathroom mirror and all the interchangeable motel room bathrooms that have come and gone and come again, you're smoking and looking for music in the shoebox filled with cassettes and the clatter of protected plastic shells around spools of magnetically coated tape is like an insect chorus, a cicada symphony. You ask what I want to hear and I tell you it doesn't matter. Please light one of those for me, but you insist and you keep right on insisting. What do you want to hear? And I say, well, not fucking Nirvana again and no more Johnny Cash, please. And you toss something from the box out the open passenger window. In the side view mirror, I see a tiny shrapnel explosion when the cassette hits the road. Cars will come behind us, cars and trucks, and roll over the shards and turn it all to dust. No more nirvana, you say, and you laugh, your boyish girls laugh, and Jesus and Joseph and Mother Mary, I'm not going to be able to live in a world without that laugh. Look at me, I say. Open your eyes. Please open your eyes and look at me, please. You can't fall asleep on me because it won't be falling asleep, will it? It won't be falling asleep at all. We are on beyond the kindness of euphemisms, and maybe we always were. So don't fall asleep. Don't flutter your eyelashes you've always hated because they're so long and pretty. Don't let them dance that totentoss tarantella we've delighted at so many goddamn times. Don't let the sun go down on me. You shove a tape into the deck. 
You always do that with such force as if there's a vendetta grudge between you and that machine. You punch it in and twist the volume knob like you mean to yank it off, and yeah, that's good, I say. That's golden. Henry Rollins snarling at the sun's one great demon eye. You light a camel for me and place it between my lips, and the steering wheel feels like a weapon in my hands, and the smoke feels like heaven in my lungs. Wake up, though. Don't shut your eyes. Remember the day that we... And remember the morning, and remember that time in shit. Was it El Paso, or was it Port Arthur? It doesn't matter, so long as you keep your eyes open and look at me. It's hours until sunrise, and have you not always sworn a blue streak that you would not die in the darkness? That's all we've got here. In for a penny, in for a pound, but blackness wall to wall, sea to shining sea. That's all we've got in the fluorescent hell. So don't you please fall asleep on me. Hot wind roars in through the impala's windows, the stink of melting tar roaring like an invisible mountain line. And you point west and say, take the next exit. We need beer, and we're almost out of cigarettes. And I want a pack of Starburst fruit chews, the tropical flavor, so the assholes better have those out there in the world's barren shit-kicker asshole. You'll just like always save all the pina colada ones for me. Then there's a thud from the trunk, and you laugh that laugh of yours all over again, only now with true passion. We need a bottle of water, I say. No good to us and a waste of time and energy and just a waste all the way around if she winds, if she ups and dies of a heat stroke back there and you shrug. Hey, keep your eyes open, love. Please, God damn it. You can do that for me. I know you can. And I break open one of the ampules of ammonia and cruelly wave it beneath your nostrils so that both eyes pop open wide, opening up cornflower blue and I think of startled birds bursting from their hiding places in tall grass. Tall grass, there's so much tall grass here at the end, isn't there? I kiss your forehead, and I can't help thinking I could fry an egg on your skin, fry an egg on blacktop, fry an egg on the hood of the Impala parked in the dog day sun outside a convenience store. You asked me to light a candle, your voice gone all jagged and broken apart like a cassette tape dropped on I-10 at 75 miles per hour. I press my fingers and palms to the sloppy red mess of your belly, and I do not dare take my hand away long enough to light a candle. I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. I cannot even do that much for you. Just please don't close your eyes. Please don't fall asleep on me, too. All these things you said to me, not on this day, then surely on some other. If not during the, this long delta night, then surely on another. The blonde with the brown eye and the one hazel green eye, she was the first. But you said to me, she'll be the most memorable yet. She wasn't the first. She'll be the one we talk about in years to come when all the rest have faded into a blur of delight and casual slaughter. We found her at a truck stop near Shreveport, and she'd been hitching down I-49 toward Baton Rouge in New Orleans. Sister, where are you bound on such a hot, hot, sweltersome night, you asked. And because she was dressed in red, a crimson tied t-shirt and a red Budweiser baseball cap, you said, wither so early, little red cap. And she laughed, and you two start shared a joint while I ate a skimpy dinner of Slim Jim's corn chips and Mountain Dew. Eighteen-wheeled dinosaurs growled in and growled out and purred at the pumps. We laughed over a machine that sold multicolored prophylactics and another that sold tampons. And would she like a ride? Would she? Because we're, we're a sight lot better than you're likely going to find elsewhere. If you're looking for, a de for decent company and conversation, that is. And the weed, there's more where that came from. How old? Eighteen, she said. And you and I both knew she was adding years, but all the better. She tossed her knapsack in the back seat and the extra pair of shoes she wore around her neck, laces laced together. She smelled of the road of many summer days without a bath, and the world smelled of dinosaur trucks and diesel and dust and Spanish moss. 
I love you so much, you whispered as I climbed in behind the wheel. I love you so much, I do not have words to say how much I love you. We set sail southwards, washed in the alien chartreuse glow of the Impala's dash, and she and thee talked while I drove, listening. That was enough for me, listening in, eavesdropping while my head filled with a wakeful, stinging swarm of bees, with wasps and yellow jackets, courtesy those handy shrink-wrapped packets of dextroamphetamine and amphetamine, black beauties, and in the glove compartment there's bifetamine tea and 40 milligram capsules of methoqualone because we all because when we drove all damn day and all damn night we came prepared didn't we love she traveled all the way from chicago the red cap backseat girl and you and i have never been to chicago and have no desire to go she talks about the road as it unrolls beneath us before me hauling us towards dawn's early light she tells you about some old pervert who picked her up outside texarkana she fucked him for 20 bucks in the lift to Shreveport. Could it done worse, you tell her, and she doesn't disagree. I watch you both in the rearview mirror. I watch you both in anticipation. The uppers and the prospect of what will come, the mischief we will do her in the woods, has me more awake than awake, has me ready to come then and there. You're twins, she said. It wasn't a question, only a statement of the obvious, as they say. We're twins, he replied but she's my big sister, born three minutes apart on the anniversary of the murder of Elizabeth Short, and she has no goddamn idea what you're talking about, but not wanting to appear ignorant, she doesn't let on. When she asks where we're from, Los Angeles, you lie. You have a generous pocket full of answers at the ready for that oft-asked question. South Norton Avenue, midway between Coliseum Street and West 39th, you say, which has as little meaning to her as the heterochromatic blonde, to the heterochromatic blonde, as does the Glasgow smile in Lemert Park. I drive and you spin our revolving personal mythology. She will be one for the book, she whispered back at the truck stop. Can't you smell it on her? Can't I smell what on her? Can't you smell happenstance and inevitability and fate? Can't you smell victim? You say those things and always I nod because like backseat girl, I don't want to appear ignorant in your view. This one I love, this one I love. Eating cartilage, shark eyes, shark heart, and black mulberry trees mean I will not survive you when the truth is I won't survive without you. Backseat girl, she talks about how she's going to find work in New Orleans as a waitress when you and I know, both know she's cut out for nothing much but stripping and whoring in the quarter. And if this were a hundred years ago, she'd be headed for fabled vanished Storyville. I had a boyfriend, she says. I had a boyfriend, but he was in a band, and they moved off to Seattle. But dude, I didn't want to go to fucking Seattle, you know? <laughs> and you say to her how it's like Cal the California gold rush or something. All these musician sheep limbing assholes and would-be wannabe musician posers traipsing their way to the fabled Northwest in hopes of riding a wave that's already broken apart and isn't even seafoam anymore. That ship has sailed, you say. And it suddenly skips to the end on me. How much time do I have? Okay. Because i got to find my place again, and that blows chunks. Um, it sailed and sunk somewhere in the deep Pacific. But that's not going to stop anyone with stars in their eyes, because the lure of El Dorado is always a bitch, whichever El Dorado is at hand. Do you miss him? I ask. And that's the first thing I've said in over half an hour, more than happy just to listen in and count off the reflective mile markers with the help of anger and discord jangling from the tape deck. Don't know, she says. And she says, maybe sometimes, maybe. The road's a lonely place, you tell her, sounding sympathetic when I know much better. 
I know your mind is full to the brim with red, red thoughts, the itch of your straight razor lust, the prospect of the coming butchery, night cruising at 80 miles per hour. We've rushed past the turnoff for next Joshis. And there's a sign that says lost by you, and our passenger asks, have we been to New Orleans? Sure, you lie. Sure, we'll show you around. We have friends who live in an old house in Burgundy, and they say the house is haunted by a Civil War ghost, and they'll probably let you crash there until you're on your feet. Sister, you make us sound like goddamn guardian angels, the best break she's ever had. I drive on, and the car reeks of pot and sweat, cigarette smoke, and the old beer cans heaped in the back floorboard. I've always wished I had a twin, she says. I used to make up stories that I was adopted, and somewhere out there I had a twin brother. One day I'd pretend we'd find one another, be reunited, you know. It's a pretty goddamn dream from ahead of such a pretty, pretty red-capped girl in the back seat, ferried by you and I in our human mask to hide hungry, wolfish faces. I could turn you inside out, I think, to the girl, and we will. It's been a week since an indulgence, a week of aimless July motoring, letting peckish swell to starvation, taking no other pleasures but junk food and blue plate specials, you and I fucking and sleeping in one another's arms, while the merciless Dixie sun burned 101 Fahrenheit at motel room rooftops, kerosene air gathered in rooms darkened and barely cooled by drawn curtains and wheezing AC, strike a match and the whole place would have gone up cartoons on television, and watching MTV and old movies in shades of black and white and gray, burgers wrapped in meat-stained paper and devoured with salty fries. Patience, love. Patience, you whispered in those shadows. And so we thrummed along back roads and highways, waiting for the right confection. And my mama said, pick the very best one, and you are it. I'm going to stop there. Um, Two other things about it, um, I, I, I really always feel like I should say it was inspired by a Nico Case song last summer, um, um, Deep Red Bells. If you, if you don't know Deep Red Bells, do something about that. <laughs> um, and it was chosen for, um, for both Ellen Datlow's Year's Best and Jonathan Strand's Year's Best, so I'm really proud of it. Thank you, Kate. That was amazing. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to uh, our guests tonight. Thanks to you guys. Thanks to the KGB bar. Uh, that's it. We'll see you next month. Oh, don't forget, uh, Word Bookseller in the back has the author's books tonight. So if you like what you heard, buy a book, bring them up, get them yeah. signed. They'll be here for a little while signing books. So please do. And we'll see you next month. Have a good night. And stay and drink if you want. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.